0: and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more.
1: Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast hosted by Aaron Fifield.
2: Hey traders, welcome. Thank you for joining me on episode 207. This week I had the pleasure of catching up with Rishi Narang. Long-time listeners of the show may recall I interviewed Rishi back in 2016 on episode 54. Either way, Rishi is the founding principal of T2AM – a fund of funds investment manager with a sole focus of allocating to quantitative trading strategies. The fund was formed in 2005, though Rishi's time in markets extends more than 20 years as he co-founded Distinguished Quant Shop Tradeworks in 99. Rishi's also the author of an excellent book, Inside the Black Box, and an advisor to DARPA's Financial Markets Vulnerabilities Project. Yes, that is DARPA as in the government agency responsible for the robot dogs. You've probably seen in those uh, somewhat terrifying videos. (laughs) So the purpose of our catch up was mostly to go over prominent trends he's seen develop in recent times, specific to quant trading and investing. Without giving away too much, it involves talk of stat arb and index rebal strategies, an attraction to China's market, narrower trading models, use cases of alt data, and we wrap up discussing the rise of retail or DIY quants. I can appreciate these topics won't be of interest to everyone, but as I've said before, I think it is highly beneficial to have some insight on how the larger players are moving in markets and how they are earning alpha. Finally, please excuse the odd bird sound. I believe Rishi was wandering outside his home as we were talking. And after this first question, you actually won't hear from me for about 20 minutes or so. My suggestion, think of this first part as more of a talk or an interesting presentation from Rishi (laughs) and then an interview follows. Please enjoy. I present to you from Los Angeles, California, Rishi Narang. You know, speaking here with regard to research and strategy, what has stood out to you as notable trends in the field of quantitative trading and investing?
3: Sure. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of few things to highlight. One one is the Oh, man, there's a few things actually. So, one is that as the landscape has shifted, Meaning you try to earn alpha in a context. It's not something that happens in a vacuum. And that context is sort of maybe best described as follows. Alpha comes from inefficiencies in asset prices that are themselves caused by either inefficiencies or relative indifferences on the part of various market participants. So an old example would be that institutional traders, institutional investors were pretty sloppy in their handling of trading of single stocks. And so they would do these large, lumpy orders and, and ignore market impact. And that basically created a whole game called StatArb, statistical arbitrage. Uh, and what would happen is there would be a price dislocation in some name. You would see that. But it's hard to know from the outside whether that came for good reason or not. And so rather than just buy a name that that fell or short a name that went up a bunch, you would find something that reduces your risk. Um, and so you put on a hedge. So you could imagine hedging with the index. Uh, but the problem with hedging with the index is there's a lot of basis risk. You know, if you're if you're buying Tesla, and shorting the S&P 500, there's a lot of idiosyncratic risk in Tesla. Well, I maybe picked a really crappy example because I don't know who a good peer for Tesla is that's publicly listed today, but the point is that you would try to find something that reduces your risk. So at least an automaker reduces your risk, right? So maybe Ford or General Motors is a better hedge for Tesla than the S&P 500 index. So that game of finding related things and shorting the outperformer and buying the underperformer which is also known as statistical arbitrage or relative mean reversion existed in the 80s 90s early 2000s because of the sloppiness of a certain class of investors mostly for that reason well as those folks evolved that inefficiency kind of went away and it changed so relative mean reversion still exists but it exists for a very different reason and that Reason also causes it to manifest in a different way, which means if you're pursuing statistical arbitrage today, your model better not look just like it did in, say, 1997, because otherwise you're like not going to make any money and probably just lose money. There are a number of ways in which the landscape has shifted, really more than we have time to get into now. But you can just think about it for yourself, how much the world has changed, say, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, there's been a gigantic move from passive to active. Uh, Other way around. Wow. From active to passive. Sorry. And a gigantic move from discretionary trading uh, interaction with the markets to algorithmic interaction with the markets. At least within U.S. equities, for example, almost all the volume is, not almost all, a giant portion of the volume is now done market on close as opposed to throughout the day. And so there's a bunch of these dynamics that are all intersecting with one another and changing the approach to making alpha. So that's one thing uh, that uh, that we've seen that's changing the game around, around us and uh, forcing us to adapt and evolve. So one example uh, is the relative increase in prominence of index rebalance strategies. So these are strategies that try to anticipate what names are going to be added to various indices. Why are we doing that? Well, or added and deleted, by the way. Um, Why are we doing that? Well, we're doing that because there's a ton of money that gets invested on the back of what, say, Standard & Poor's puts in the S&P 500. And that's true for MSCI indices and all kinds of other indices as well. Um, so all this passive money isn't exactly passive, it's just sort of sheep-like following the, the, the dictums, I guess that would be dicta of various index construction companies. And so those index construction companies uh, say, okay, Uh, we're including company X in the S&P 500. And that announcement means that now all of the vanguards and fidelities and all of the other index managers and the the folks who administer the SPY ETF and so on, they all have to go out and buy company X in the right proportion. And, of course, with a fixed number of names type of index like the S&P 500, if a name is in, then a name is also out. And so those folks then also have to sell that other name. So that's interesting too, right? So you have something where there's going to be enormous buying pressure and enormous selling pressure. Pretty useful to know about that in advance if you could. You kind of can, because a lot of them publish indicators of how or guide guidebooks or guidelines for how they think about adding and removing names for inclusion. So uh, that game really exists because of inefficiencies in the way passive folks invest. There's an indifference there. Uh, you know, If you're the S&P 500, you only care a little bit about the performance of the S&P 500. You're, you know, certainly for an ETF manager, you don't really care because by definition, you get those stocks in those proportions and you just sit and hold them guess what return you're going to get? You're going to get the S&P 500 return. If you have adverse market impact, meh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it goes into the price and whatever. So there's not that much incentive to be that clever about managing market impact. I mean, there is to some extent, but it's limited. And so there are a whole bunch of strategies that exist. Not a whole bunch, but there's a whole bunch of money being managed around this strategy of index rebalancing. And it's not just the S&P, of course, it's all these indices globally. So that's one big example of how the world has changed is this active to passive thing. And by the way, even if you're a stat-arb manager, uh, you now kind of need to start accounting for index rebounds in your price action. So as an example, if your model is ignorant of the fact that company X has just been added and company Y has just been deleted from the index, and you're just watching price action relative to peers, then suddenly company X is soaring and company Y is reeling. And you may get in front of that mountain of flow that's coming your way. So you kind of have to start to have almost like a risk factor or a, uh, an adverse selection avoidance technique for index rebal. So even if you're not trading it as an alpha, which you would do if you're doing index rebal. You still have to have index rebal if you're going to try to be good at the game. So that's one thing. Another thing is uh, like a big dispersion or um, diaspora of the places and markets that quant strategies are, are applied in. So, you know, Indian stat arb and emerging markets stat arb and China stat, China stat arb is like a huge business right now. Uh, I don't even know the numbers offhand, but the, amount of money going into both onshore money and offshore money going into quantitative equities and futures trading of mainland Chinese assets is just stupendous. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's a huge number. Um, and the number of firms is, is also pretty big. You know, There are a lot of folks who, for example, worked at US firms and then realized, well, there's this more or less frontier market where there's a lot more alpha, a lot more retail participation, and a lot more inefficiencies in China. It's also harder in a bunch of ways to trade offshore, or if you're an offshore entity, especially up until quite recently. And so maybe, you know, if you were someone who was here on H1B visa in the US and worked for Two Sigma or D Shao or whatever quant firm, Maybe just go home and set up a shop there uh, in China and have a bunch of local advantages over the U.S. And, and U.K. firms that are trying to play that game. So that's definitely been happening. Um, is Oh, and, and the application of quant techniques into all kinds of other areas, by the way, venture capital, uh, crypto, credit, peer-to-peer lending, um, municipal bond market making, I mean all kinds I've seen so many interesting things that are not just basic equity stat arb in the developed markets or basic futures strategies in the developed markets. And I guess the third big trend is maybe the most interesting, which is the there's been a shift in the balance between taking overfitting risk and underfitting risk. And just philosophically, I think it's really interesting. In the old days, a pretty dirty insult for quant was that they've overfit. But now we're seeing folks do a variety of things that their actions are telling you that they're at least as afraid of underfitting as of overfitting. That looks like a couple different things. So first of all, in the old days for the purposes of largely cross-validation and statistical significance, models were typically universal, meaning for some universe of many securities, basically without exclusion, uh, this model applies to all of them. So if there are uh, all US stocks, but then realistically you can only trade the top, say 3,000 of them, if, if that's what you determine from a liquidity standpoint, then you have one model with one set of parameters one set of factors uh, and one set of weights for all 3000 stocks, meaning the drivers of your forecast for Walmart are the same as for Pfizer, are the same as for Amazon, are the same as for Google and Facebook and Tesla. All those companies are forecasted with the exact same set of factors, the same weights, the same parameters. Um, we're now seeing industry-specific and even company-specific models, or if you're talking about futures, individual market models. And what you're seeing with those is a decision that your prior might be a lot stronger on a single company forecast forecasting model. Like I can know what the KPRs KPIs are for some specific company, but um, I might not have a lot of data history to prove that out in a back test, but I'm willing to trust my prior more uh, and not worry as much about having statistical significance. Uh, Another easy example would be something like inventory data. So, you know, on U.S. companies' quarterly reports, there's a standard line item for inventory. Well, if you're a bank, what is inventory? If you're a you know, an, an audit and consulting firm like Price Coopers or Ernst and Young or whatever. What what is that? You know, uh, what is inventory? But if you're a a manufacturer of television sets, well, now we know what inventory is, right? So, but that is important interest information for the latter kind of company and not for the former. And so, you don't want to throw out that data potentially. Uh, but that does mean you have a different model for those industries where inventory is a thing, and a different model for those sectors and industries where it's not. So that's one expression of this shift in the balance between over and underfitting risk. The second is the increased use of alternative data sources. And this is related to the first thing, which we'll call narrower models as opposed to more broad models. Um, models are applied on a, a more narrow set of, um, of securities. For the second thing, um, this is now models that are driven by data that are only available for certain kinds of companies. So a great example is, uh, is credit card data. So I'm guessing that your listeners will know that their credit card spending is being Tracked by various companies. And whether individualized or aggregated, that data is being sold to hedge funds uh, who use it mostly quantitatively, but not always, uh, to make decisions about what to buy and sell. And basically, what they're doing is looking for a faster or more accurate estimation of, say, revenues for. Uh, certain kinds of companies. Well, if it's credit card data, it's interesting because you can't buy everything and you don't buy everything on credit cards. And in any case, there is only a subset of things that go into uh, the category of like things that humans, like regular people, buy. So as an example, it doesn't tell you anything about uh, how Boeing is doing on its aerospace sales. Like credit card data does not apply to Boeing probably doesn't apply much to auto manufacturers either because most people are not buying cars on their credit card. They're either sending a wire or writing a check or writing a check and then having a financing line. And that's a different thing. It tells you a lot about what they're doing with Amazon and what they're doing with Macy's and whatever else. Like So it's really useful for retail and consumer and hospitality type companies. Um, And a few other categories, but, you know, credit card data is really interesting for a few hundred companies in the U.S. Not very interesting for the other two and a half, three and a half thousand easily tradable companies. So that's the second thing is this sort of trend towards alternative data, which is very much hand in hand with the trend towards narrower models. The third thing is... The increased use of machine learning or artificial intelligence uh, strategies. So, that's the other really big piece in all of this. So, uh, you know, these things by definition are looking at data to tell you how what the forecasting variables should be and how much they should matter. Uh, And we can talk about the different use cases of ML and AI if you want, but um, there are some firms. claim to be making forecasts without priors without saying oh i have this economic model of how companies asset prices work what drives a stock to go up what drives a stock to go down i'm just gonna let the machine figure it out and that's inherently a, a more fitting kind of an exercise
0: you've seen the headlines bonds are making a comeback But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then
1: And split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
2: So here you've obviously outlined three different trends that you've, that you've noticed uh, in the space of quant trading and investing. Going right back to the start, and I just have a few questions about each of these. You spoke about knowing in advance when a symbol may be added to an index. Can you maybe go into that a little bit more about how you may know in advance?
3: Sure, yeah. So in many cases, and this will just be one example for the sake of time, in many cases, most of the determination is simply a market capitalization-based cutoff. So we're going to take like the Russell Russell two thousand. There's a certain ranking of market caps that happens. And if it's company 1001 through 3000, in terms of the ranking by market cap, kind of presumably that company is supposed to be in the Russell 2000. And they have certain dates that they announce these um, inclusions and exclusions, they announce the new composition of the index. And then dates at which those changes are made effective. And there's some time in between there. So there's a range of strategies that you can do. Similar to the way that people treat merger ARB, you can look at like the history of all mergers and say, well, what kinds of companies get bought? And then I'm going to go out and screen the world for those kinds of companies and maybe buy some or all of them. And then some of them are going to be targets for, for takeovers. So there you're trying to get in a, ahead of the, uh, the acquirer. Here you're trying to get ahead of the market cap um, based index solution or index provider. And then all of the people and firms that have to follow suit and either bring in the new names or get rid of the old ones. It's not exactly front running, but all alpha is in a sense probabilistic front running. You're trying to know before it happens, that other people are going to buy this stock in aggregate or sell this stock or this asset in in advance, um, and you're doing that with a bunch of hard work and not with any kind of actual knowledge of their trades. But you do have to get there before they do; otherwise, it's not alpha. Then it's you know something else that doesn't work. You know, I wonder what the name for that is. Doing. Uh, doing all the right trades, but doing them after the fact. I mean, I guess that's trend following, but.
2: This information, I mean, is that publicly available to everybody? Yeah. The information about what's going to be included into an index?
3: Some of it is. So as an example, um, the index providers have gotten smart about, as as all capitalist companies generally are, but how to extract money for everything. So just as exchanges are now charging a huge amount for data, that you know is a major part of their revenue streams even though they're really not in the business of selling data they're in the business of processing transactions of securities and providing a safe environment for the transaction of securities and so they charge fees for that too but then they they know you have to have that data if you're like a high frequency trader you have to have the data of every single exchange for various reasons in the u.s and so um those exchanges have, you know, extract a toll for, for that data. Well, just so the index providers are charging for index composition data and they are, and it's, some of it's not cheap. I mean, to get like Russell S and P MSCI, that is some hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just for those three and not even for all regions.
2: Well. Wow really hmm. that much yeah
3: but anyone like it's not like you have to know somebody who knows somebody to get the data but you do have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of data uh, of uh, budget for the data yeah and that's true for a lot of stuff man
2: and this you're talking about the data around index rebalancing
3: specifically that yes and all of, no no just to be clear this is not index rebal data this is index composition data this is to tell you just what is in the S&P 500 right now what tickers and at what weights? That's it. That's all that hundreds of thousands of dollars gets you. But you can imagine if you're doing index rebal, it's kind of an important ingredient in in doing the trade right.
2: So what what are some of the trades you see around this? Like, is it? I mean, I presume that they're probably a little bit more sophisticated than just buying a symbol which you think is going to be uh, added into an index.
3: <laughs> wow. Why would you presume that? It's that's it. That's the trade. <laughs> now, the sophistication may be in why do you think that it's going to be added, but um, and there are a range of strategies around that. So there are folks who traffic in like the lower probability names in index rebal versus those that traffic in the names that have already been announced but it hasn't completely been um, implemented yet. So there's like a range of certainty about. Whether or not this name is going to be included, and as a result of that range of certainty, there are different players with different risk appetites and different models. So let's say, for example, that you're talking about the Russell 1000, which, if I, if memory serves and if my knowledge is correct, is simply the 1,000 largest market caps in the U.S. equity market. So now let's say that um, there's a rebal coming up, an announcement coming up about the rebal. Uh, and when and when I say coming up, like how far in advance you trade is an open question here. So but let's just pretend that the answer is three months before the rebound, I'm gonna start putting on positions. okay? So it's uh, I think their rebounds are announced in March, but I don't remember. It could be November. I have no idea, whatever. And I don't remember the frequency either. but let's say it's March. So I'm gonna start putting on my positions in December, January. At that time, there's a bunch of companies that are, say, ranked from 900 or 800 to 1200 in market cap, which over the course of three months, might move up or down enough in market cap to either get them excluded from the top thousand or included in the top thousand. So this is interesting because this isn't just about is this company going to be good? It's is it going to be good at, it's, Is it going to be better or worse? then the companies around it in this specific weird peer group of companies that may have nothing to do with each other otherwise, but they're all not really competing, but you can think of them as competing, like horse racing, to be in that top 1,000 so that they get included. Now, again, maybe the companies don't care if they're included in the Russell 1,000 or not, but their stock prices care. Now, let's say that I'm really good at forecasting three-month price outcomes for companies. Well, I better use that information, and then I'll have a little bit more conviction to buy bigger those names that I'm going to hold for 3 months ish and are likely to be included because then when that announcement comes there's a big pop and as the certainty builds there's a big pop so there's this kind of weird short-term momentum thing that happens in those in that category of names that has nothing to do with say the top 10 companies in the Russell 1000 because there's almost a zero probability that in 3 months those companies are uh, are going to drop out of the index right so it's a little bit like options theory if you're the number one ranked market cap in the US or in any market and you know you're far and away the biggest which happens it would be like um what is the value of a deep out of the money put on that company with a 3 month expiry and the value of that's like very close to zero it's basically zero if you're talking about something where it's a three month expiry for very near the money options, well, now that's fun, right? And if you have information that gives you a clue, then you should use that information. Does that make sense?
2: It does make sense. Yeah.
3: And what's more, there's a, there's an asymmetry here. If your company number 999, the last time or 1000, the last time the Russell 1000 was constituted, and you're still kind of 999, 1000, there's a chance you get excluded, which means there's a whole ton of money that has to come out of you. If you're company 1001, and you remain company 1001, there's not a lot of downside for that price because it's already excluded and it's still excluded. So for those companies that are outside the index looking in, there's more upside than downside. And for those companies that are barely in the index, there's more downside than upside. So it's just very interesting that dynamic and what it means when you're building a model.
2: So ultimately you're trying to buy early enough, predicting that a company may be added to an index um, in order to essentially front run all the flow, which is gonna be coming into that stock over the coming weeks and months.
3: Yeah. And again, this word front run has like actual legal meaning and we don't mean it that way, but yes, of course, I call it that. You want to get in front of it, which is a lot like front running, (laughs) but, but the legal definition of front running is about, you know, having knowledge of someone, like actual knowledge of someone's order and then going in front of it. Like if you call your broker and say, I want to buy a billion shares of IBM. And then your broker's like, cool, let me go buy a million shares of IBM right before that. And then I'll do your order. Because that way I'll profit from all your market impact.
2: Let's just say you're, you're trying to be the first to act. <laughs>
3: yeah, or, or, yeah, or certainly get in not front the last. You're trying to be early to act.
2: Early, yeah. Yeah. The second point you made was about China, which I thought was quite interesting. You said there's a lot of stat-up opportunities there right now. Um, how come that is the case?
3: It's a combination of factors. So there's onshore money... And offshore money. There's onshore firms and offshore firms. Like, you can't have onshore money if you're an offshore firm. That's like not a thing. Uh, you can have offshore money if you're an onshore firm. So, there's a supply thing and a demand thing that's happening. From the supply side, the ability to trade China as an offshore investor that's recently been a little bit um, that's been made a little bit easier recently. And so that's, that's one thing, right? So if you're like two Sigma or PDT or some other us or whatever, non-Chinese firm, you can now access China relatively easily. Actually, there's a bunch of like international brokers like Morgan Stanley and UBS and so on that can give you access to that market, uh, simply, very simply. Um, And there are rules around shorting and shorting individual names and shorting the index and so on. So you can even be market neutral. If I understand correctly, and I haven't studied this too, too much, but um, if I understand correctly, if you're an onshore firm managing onshore money, uh, you cannot short individual names. I'm not even sure if you can short the index, but maybe you can. But that's now Chinese money. Um, that's been going on a little bit of time, but there's also a different supply dynamic there, which is that you, as I said, have a lot of new supply of quants who used to work at non-Chinese firms and have decided, let's set up shop in China where we live, where there's a, a less efficient market. That second thing where there's a less efficient market, that statement is what's driving the demand side of this, which is to say, again, as some of the more obvious and straightforward markets to access and bigger markets have filled up, if you look at China, it's a really big market. It's a really big economy, only set to get bigger. And you know there's a rush to get in there before it gets too crowded and be early and gather data and all those things that give you an early mover advantage. Um, Access to talent, access to data, storing your own data is super valuable. But this, you know, you can't do that until you start doing it. So like go start doing it. So that there's been like a lot of that.
2: Have you allocated to any managers who are trading Chinese markets, like in order yeah. for, for your fund to have exposure yep. there?
3: Yep. We have offshore two offshore Chinese well, money with two firms that are both based in mainland China but are offering offshore strategies to offshore investors. And yeah, we've we've picked a couple of them and we've looked at dozens.
2: Okay. Is that just a recent thing?
3: Pretty recent. Um, both this year. Uh, right. I, I want to say the first one went live mid-year, but we probably know that means we've been talking to them for a little while.
2: Yeah, okay. You also brought up the point about I might get this slightly wrong, but it was something to the extent of things which are used in quant being applied to other areas outside of financial markets. I know you mentioned venture capital, and there were a couple other things as well. Could you speak to that a little bit more?
3: Yeah, and it's, again, the same drive for diversification and, and access to markets that are a little weirder and more complicated to to. So there are some more barriers to entry. And if you think about this, like just from a basic economic principle standpoint, it's the same thing as saying, well, there are barriers to entry to making this kind of widget. But if I happen to have some edge at making that widget, then I should probably go do that because I'm going to enjoy a competitive advantage for a while. So and being early is its own competitive advantage because that means I have a head start on others. But, you know, there's something you have to risk. You have to put up a bunch of upfront costs to get there. So credit. Um, you know, this is like debt issued by companies that that are, so it's not government debt. It's usually uh, you know, it's 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 debt from private companies that debt trades. So it's not just that the company issues debt and you decide I will lend to this company. You can buy and sell that debt. And there is a market for it. It's in the U.S. corporate credit market, not um, fully exchange uh traded and in fact it's mostly not um but you know some of the credit default swaps are exchange traded and it's a changing market it's an evolving marketplace Um, it it has very different challenges and one of the most obvious is is data Um, like it's not that complicated to think about what would cause a bond to be more attractive relatively and what would cause it to be less attractive what's complicated is asking like how do i even crack the history of bonds. So unlike stocks, bonds expire. And on top of that, they're issued at various coupons at various times and various durations. And so managing that data set, it's like it's just a different problem from uh, managing normal equity data set or even futures data set. You know, futures expire too, but there's far fewer of them than there are companies and credits. So yeah, there's like this crazy data wrangling problem. There's systematic strategies uh, in peer-to-peer lending. So this is like Lending Club and Lending Tree, where if you're just some random person and you want to borrow $5,000 for whatever random reason, you can apply for a loan and other random people who have $5,000 extra sitting around can lend that to you and earn on it at their local savings account. But then they're taking credit risk on you as an individual, the random borrower. And so um, there are now quant strategies out there that are pouring over credit data and pouring over characteristics of borrowers and saying, well, this borrower might not have the greatest credit score. And I don't know if you guys have the equivalent in Australia or elsewhere, wherever listeners may be, but in the US, you know, you have a credit score that a credit agency uh, has a list of factors that uh, describe your credit worthiness. And, you know, like in a very popular such scheme, a really high credit score, I think the maximum is 850, 850. I don't know why it's not a thousand or why it's not a hundred, but it's 800 and goddamn 50. So that's what <laughs> it is. And, um, you know, you're considered as having good credit. I think if your credit's above 750, let's call it. And so, you know, if you're a, an 820 credit score person, it's very easy to get money fairly cheaply. If you're a 600 credit score person it's a lot less easy but it might be that that's just because of something stupid because these credit these credit ratings are not like god telling you this is a good lender or good borrower I mean this is like a, a flawed universally applied model telling you that maybe some random circumstance that happened three years ago beat up your credit score but it turns out you're actually a really good borrower who pays everything back so they look for those kinds of people to try to find the ones that are better borrowers. and But because their credit score sucks, they know they're gonna have a higher interest rate. Does that make sense? So you try to find like these good value loans to make where you get a high yield, but the risk isn't that bad. It's not, not in line how high the yield is. Um, so yeah, there's systematic strategies for that. And you can tell there's a whole different set of data there and a whole different kind of problem there than there is when you're trying to forecast the price of IBM.
2: Gotcha. That's really uh, quite
3: fascinating. And some of the stuff isn't new. Some of it's been going on for a while. Um, you know, Systematic credit trading has been going on 10, 15 years now. But at the same time, the prominence of it is much higher. Like There's at least two standalone quant funds that are doing just that. And then the magnitude of that activity within some of the larger multi-strats is much larger than it used to be, and it's the same for quant trading in China. Like that's been happening for a minute, but it's just it's now like on the map, you know.
2: So the third point, uh, I wanted to ask you a question on that uh, with regard to underfitting and overfitting a model. Do you have any tips for how to get the balance right?
3: Oof, that's actually. Like, legitimately, really hard. I mean, there's so many factors. And the reason that this change is happening is once again, both from a supply perspective and from a demand perspective. And I know I'm mapping things to supply and demand. This isn't like a clean mapping, but I'll explain what I mean. So, on the supply side, we have an increasing number of people who are in jobs in quant firms that have training in machine learning and artificial intelligence and some of those folks used to work at places like facebook and they're just sick of selling advertisements to people right like they thought oh cool i get to work for this really cool company it's a tech company i'm not selling my soul look at social media i'm like connecting families and friends and former colleagues and alumni but then it turns out what i'm really doing is i'm selling people ads and that gets at some point maybe grading on your soul and so you quit that job and you go work for a different soul-crushing place that's just trying to make rich people richer. Cool. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, that is one um, source of increased supply. The other is the field itself has advanced. I mean, the problem of forecasting asset prices is a really hard problem. Uh, this, these are incredibly noisy processes, uh, very close to random walks, uh you're out of sample r squareds for those of you who know what that that is are like low single digits so like 0.03 is a successful r squared and you know anyone in any other science, most other scientific fields would look at that as a forecast out of sample r squared and go you're basically noise like you don't have anything better than a, a coin toss here so why are we doing this but that's a that's a successful <laughs> That's a successful outcome in my world, right? So when you have that noisy of a process, the techniques to, uh, and by the way, very limited data, Um, you know, if you're doing self-driving cars, you can basically generate more data just by, so like, let's say that I have a self-driving car and, you know, you find that it's not performing well in rain. Well, let's go to Portland and Seattle for a while and train more cars there. Like you could just get more data. For the capital markets, you can't get more data. The data are non-stationary and there just isn't that much of it. You know, if you compare like the number of Facebook posts and number of Facebook users to like the total amount of data about US equities, and I mean like the daily data in the one versus the total cumulative data in the other, it one, like they're just orders of magnitude different, you know, Uh, we're talking about billions of data points per day, if not more, and on, in the kind of social media world, and we're talking about maybe billions of data points in the whole cumulative history of everything in U.S. equities. And so, you know, you can see that that's, those are just different problems. There are other differences, too, but just for the sake of time, let's just acknowledge that these are very different problems. You may need different and better techniques and more powerful computing clusters to be able to tackle these differing challenges and so that's the other aspect of the supply side but again the demand side is there so as conventional old school techniques have become more heavily competed as the philosophies and concepts and ideas and theories that underpin those strategies have proliferated and been leaked out into competitive firms by virtue of employees changing jobs or leaked out into the academic journals and textbooks and so on. You know Those old ideas are harder and harder to make money on. And so just as some people are deciding, okay, well, the hell with it. I'm going to go venture far afield in, and trade China, even though it's a pain in the neck. Uh, maybe uh, some of them are saying, well, I'm going to venture further afield in my techniques. I happen to be really good at this machine learning thing. And so I'm going to do that where it's harder to compete with me. So there's that happening too, that there's a desire to take more fitting risk because the lower hanging fruit, which doesn't have fitting risk, you know, it's not easy making money that way anymore.
2: I feel as though a lot of what we've been talking about here is very much applicable to, you know, the large quant funds uh, and very much the professional space. I'd like to ask you, what have you seen? And the trend among DIY quants so the at home retailer who has you know might have some machine learning skills you know has learned how to program has wrote some sort of systematic strategies because I think when we last spoke in uh, 2016 you know in the past four years there's been a big rise uh, in this space is there anything you've been seeing here which is particularly interesting
3: yeah uh, for sure. So there's a few dynamics there. It's a good question. In my perspective on retail is mostly U.S. and then like random smatterings, Asia. I don't actually weirdly have any impression at all of Australia or Europe as far as retail investing. But maybe you can tell me and, and we can reflect on it a little bit. But as far as the U.S. goes, um, retail investors were a steady kind of part of that market. For a very long time, I can tell you, like when I was a child, I distinctly remember my dad going through the newspaper, like the physical print newspaper, and going through like which stocks he owned and how they did yesterday. And this is like the next morning finding out how each stock he did. No clue how his portfolio was like because you'd have to like sit there and do that math. But you could certainly look at the Wall Street Journal or the local paper and it would have a printout of thousands and thousands of ticker in very fine print and what their last close was what the change was yesterday and what the volume was and a few other columns. You know, folks like my dad have been doing that for a long time. Uh when the internet kind of boom happened in the late 90s and commensurate with that, tech stock sort of IPOs boomed. And you know, pets.com and and all that were out there. Um it's a now defunct company that sold like pet care products online. You know, there were a bunch of companies that went public and a lot of interest on those, but also just in general on the markets because the market was rallying really hard and it was pretty easy to kind of quote unquote look like a genius. You bought five internet companies and just were up like 100% a week or whatever the hell. And so that dynamic really did lead to a pretty significant increase in the participation of retail investors. When that crashed, that definitely took a, a, a big chunk of retail participation with it because those folks realized, well, no, it turns out this is hard and I'm kind of shitty at it. And so they stopped. That took another leg down just a few years later when the second, that you know 2008 crisis happened. You know, the first crisis ended in 2002. Late 2002, I think, maybe even early 2003, uh, and then the second crisis started in November of 2007. So you didn't even have five, six years between those two crises, and that was two 50% drawdowns in U.S. equities in the space of 10 in the space of 10 years. It's pretty crazy, and unsurprisingly, that turned off a lot of people to investing in stocks at all. And if they were going to invest in stocks, it was just going to be passive. So that kicked off that passive trend and also kicked off a de-retailization trend in the U.S. Uh, In some other markets, retail investors have been more present uh, for longer and more consistently, like in places like China and Singapore and so on, Um, Korea. But where there's, and I don't know how to say this without it sounding politically incorrect, but like folks just gamble. Like you go to the casino, that's a completely normal thing to do. In the U.S., that's not like a completely normal thing to do. Casinos are, like, illegal in most of the states in America, which is a funny thing. There's just less of that kind of culture of just making bets and punting around, um, which, for better or worse, is what it is. Now, we've had this crazy bull market, and on top of that, a lot more tech is available than has ever been before. That is just the nature of things. That same statement will be true, like, two years from now, unless we truly devour ourselves. (laughs) So the platforms out there, and I don't mean Robinhood, which is to me just sort of a joke. Uh, I mean more uh, like Quantopian and other similar platforms where anyone can get out there and just code up trading systems. And then there's brokers like interactive brokers, where if you're like semi-pro, you have a few hundred thousand dollars, you could set up an account there and have some of the same tools and access as professionals have although it's definitely a far cry frankly cost-wise especially yeah it's you know it's kind of cool so you can you can set up like a one-person quant shop and i know lots of folks who do and in fact some of the folks we've allocated to come exactly from that lineage where they didn't go they weren't like ex-employees of two sigma maybe they've had some professional experience but what they really did was they're just homegrown Hobbyists who are really good at it and go, you know what, we're going to, we're, this is, I'm good at this. I want to do this professionally and scale up. Uh, And we've had some success with that model. I mean, but, you know, we've also had some failure with that. It's not easy. But yeah, there's been this um, kind of combination or confluence of things where we have this protracted bull market that's encouraged retail participation and a lot of really specific brand excitement around names like Apple and Tesla. And then, at the same time, the availability of technology to actually make it easy to code up strategies and backtest them and implement them and enter competitions. Um, and those things kind of combined to to make it pretty it's been yeah, there's been like a big surge in that world.
2: Yeah, I remember last time when we spoke you you mentioned you had allocated to someone who was, essentially just a one-man band working from his uh, apartment
3: still have only with that same guy
2: yeah I think you'd mentioned he was managing about 15 million dollars I'm not sure what that is today is but 70 70 million one guy from his apartment mm-hmm. that's incredible that, that's not 70 million from you that's you're just a portion of that no it's all from us all from you yeah Wow yeah <laughs> That's, that's uh, quite incredible. Let me ask you this question and we'll wrap things up here. But let's say there is someone listening to this who kind of fits into that category of DIY quant, uh, you know, retailer working at home. They've developed a quantitative strategy. They've been having a little bit of success with it, trading it for some time, real money. they like the idea of running more capital through that strategy, scaling up. What would this trader need to do to be ready for investment?
3: That's a great, great question, Aaron. Um, So uh, it depends is the answer. Um, If they are willing to simply license their signal, meaning they would once a day or on whatever the right frequency is for that strategy, send a list of trades that their model comes up with someone who has all the infrastructure and compliance and operational aspects to do that, um, to, to put on those trades and do it correctly, uh, then the bar is a lot lower because they don't really need much of anything. If they want to actually like set up a fund and, or a firm that does this and you know, you'll have to register with the relevant authorities as, a, as an investment advisor or whatever the equivalent is in your jurisdiction, um you'll have to show to investors that you can actually process trades and all kinds of other things. Um, you know, that hurdles a lot higher, like a lot higher, and it's expensive uh, and not likely to work. So just to be clear, um, you know, I think that the far more sensible path is to contract with someone who's already got a substantial operation and license your signals out. And then, if it turns out you're really good at this in the long run, A, you'll just make money doing it. You may not have to quit your day job. But B, if you decide you really want to do it, at least you'll have some track record of what your signals have done. And then, when you try to go out and get unreal size, you know, and then at, at least when you try to go out and get capital, one of the big questions that investors ask, which is, is this thing scalable? You know, if I run a $500 billion pension fund, or a $10 billion fund of hedge funds or family office or whatever. Um, I'm not looking to make a $10 million investment in a, in a hedge fund that might return 10% per year. Like making a million dollars of PL per year for someone at that size is like not worth the effort, not worth the marginal cost. And so and you've got to really demonstrate that you are uh, able to scale. And if you could demonstrate that, oh no, my signal generated 20 million of PL, admittedly, it wasn't my firm that that put the trades on, then yeah, there's there's something there. But the more realistic thing is that if you're a hobbyist, stay a hobbyist, frankly, and license your signals to people who are doing this for real and um, and you get paid. Uh, and that's kind of cool.
2: What would be an example of someone who may be interested in in licensing signals though, like, would that be a fund manager or?
3: Yeah. So, um, and I, I think they've stopped doing this now, but world quant used to do it and globally, like they had farmers in Vietnam who were contributors of signals. Right. Um, but I think they've shut that practice down. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. We know there's, there's, there's a few out there. I mean, some of them are looking for more like professional, cvs like people who used to work at at firms that are doing this professionally and maybe have have gone off on their own yeah there there are a few out there i'm not comfortable naming names to be honest just because no i wouldn't expect you to yeah Yeah, i don't have but yeah these are professional quant hedge funds
2: okay would you have any luck you know maybe with some smaller family offices do you think that's something they may be interested in
3: Sure, if you have a relationship, uh, but you know, as with so many things, like these days, there's so many people unemployed, especially in the US, that their resume is going into the inboxes of every person, that, every employer that's got a job opening. It's not quite hopeless if you randomly send your resume into a vacuum, but you definitely know it's a lot better if you have a connection. Well, how much more so for something like this, where you're asking for millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars of risk capital and a budget? Um that you know, that's not just a normal job, right? That's a job with some real strings attached. So if you have like a good relationship with someone, then sure it's I think worth barking up that tree. But I I honestly think it's like lower probability than a lottery ticket if you're just like casting your net out into the ether. Trust is a big part of this, you know?
2: For sure. Yeah. yeah. I know you've got to run. I was gonna ask you really quickly, uh about your involvement with DARPA? Is that something you'd be interested in talking about?
3: Yes, but I'm not like under NDA or anything, and I can talk about it really briefly. Um, So it was really cool and fun and interesting. So basically, uh, some years ago, I was approached by um, a professor who's a friend of mine who is friends with some folks who are at DARPA or were at the time, and said, hey, would you be interested in connecting with them? They are looking at, uh, financial warfare kind of things. And so this is part of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. And this was not an exercise in looking at, you know, aggressive tactics, rather in defensive tactics and strategies for protecting American markets and financial systems from various parties that for either political or economic reasons may want to Cause problems, right? So, causing outages at exchanges or causing um, outages with you know payroll processing systems or any number of other vectors of threat. And there are, of course, continuously both governmental and non-governmental parties that are very aggressive in in that stuff. And so it's you know it was this super fun intellectual exercise of like what are the vectors of threats and what could we do to detect them early, prevent them mitigate the spread of the damage. Um, so, you know, we do things like war games and um, and table exercises to to sort of flesh out some of these things a little bit. And the part of the goal was to see, is there something measurable and quantifiable and within DARPA's remit to actually focus on to uh, to work on this problem? So the way DARPA works is it starts as a seedling, which is all this thing has been so far and then it only becomes a program if the seedling shows that there is not only something to do here but something for darpa specifically to do because darpa isn't you know doesn't have a completely carte blanche remit it has a specific remit and so if it if there's stuff to do but it's better for like the treasury department to do well then that's fine like hand that off to the treasury department and they can decide what to do you know if it's fits for darpa then it has to fit some criteria and uh, so yeah, they're still in the evaluation phase. It it does appear that there's enough for some stuff to be done as a program, but that has not been finalized. It's super fun, really interesting. It
2: does sound like an interesting project to be involved with. So you're just sort of consulting on it at the for, for the time being.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I'm an, I'm like a volunteer, uh, so I'm consulting informally. No security clearances, no NDAs. I literally had one condition was that I get to put it on my LinkedIn because how cool is that?
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's why I asked you about it.
1: Yeah.
3: And I've, I
2: wasn't really sure the link between DARPA because I just know them as creating the, the robot dog <laughs> yeah. and other crazy robots. I wasn't really sure the link between that and financial markets,
3: but yeah. Yeah, it was a little bit surprising, but you can see that it's You know, economic defense and military defense are sort of more interlinked than ever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Many wars have been fought over economic interests, I think, far more than people generally realize.
2: Right, for sure. Well, Rishi, I know you need to shoot off. Uh, I just want to say uh, it was really nice to catch up with you and uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and um, sharing a bit of an update on some of the things you've been seeing and what's been uh, developing in markets. So if someone wants to follow you, Uh, Would you like to share your Twitter handle and maybe your website and also mention your book too?
3: Sure, Aaron. Thanks a lot for having me again. Again, good to catch up. Uh, I'm on Twitter, not super actively, but I am on Twitter uh, at Rishi K. Narang. Um, And I did write a book, the second edition of which came out in 2013 called Inside the Black Box that should be readily available on places like Amazon uh what was the other thing i was supposed to share
2: uh your website
3: i don't really have one okay
2: (laughs) the t2 website no uh
3: yeah there's nothing on there but yeah my company is www.t2am.com
2: okay and inside the black box is a fantastic book i've read it several times i have a copy myself i would definitely recommend it if you're interested in this type of thing so yeah until next time rishi We'll we'll chat soon.
3: Thanks, Aaron. Stay safe, man. Be good.
0: You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.